Hey folks, welcome to this remote Dark Horse podcast live stream. I am, of course, of course, am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying, and um, we are excited to be here on a Sunday, which is not our typical. It's not. It's not. Uh, so you can, for those of you watching, you can tell we're on a different set uh, with this beautiful piece of art behind us. That's about all that is true that we're going to say here. Um, we are going to talk about, uh, well, we were delayed by quail little bit, a little bit yesterday, which is to say we saw quail. And um, yes, we were also having some technical difficulties, but we saw quail and uh, we watched quail. I will say that um, we together were blocked by quail. I was not frightened. Um, you think I was? Was I quailing? I, I don't know if you were frightened, but I sort of took you to be frightened. And that's the way in which we were detained. I see. By quail. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, I, I did not, uh, I did not frighten. <laughs> That's terrific. <laughs> so we're going to talk a bit today about higher education and about religion and about apologies and about fluvoxamine and uh, uh, giraffes, uh, redux, a little uh, little update on the, the giraffe story that we talked about last week. Uh, but first, some, some logistics. Um, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century is continues to be available, please consider getting it and reading it and talking about it. If you have not yet, we are, uh, for now, streaming on both YouTube and Odyssey. The live chat is on Odyssey. You can ask questions. We've already got some questions since, uh, since we announced late yesterday that we were not going to be streaming yesterday. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And you may are encouraged to join either or both of our Patreons. We do a monthly private Q&A at mine, and Brett does a couple of um, smaller uh, sort of Zoom conversations with some of his Patreons at higher tier levels once a month as well. We uh, consider coming over to Natural Selections, my Substack, where um, every Tuesday there's a free post. This last week, uh, I wrote about why we should not be transitioning children, medically or surgically. And um, next week, we'll, I'll be talking about higher ed and some of some of what we are going to be talking about today, and a bit more as well. Um, but first, we have three ads today because we are from this new, uh, because we are not in our usual spot. Uh, we don't have the usual. Oh, we do have the green. Oh, I. I yeah. No sound, no sound. Okay. So there's no sound. For those of you listening, usually you have a sound coming into the ads and a sound going out. Um, this is so now close your space. eyes and imagine a green border unless you're driving. In which case, imagine what color border. Yeah, we are not driving instructors, but I think in this case, we will recommend that if you are driving, leave your eyes open. Yes. Not in a position to give professional advice unless here. Unless you sneeze, in which case you may briefly have to close them, but mm -hmm. as briefly as possible, that would be mm -hmm. my advice. That's excellent. Excellent advice as always. All right. Three ads today. Um, the first is um, a new sponsor to us this week, Moink, M-O-I-N-K. They deliver grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door. Just four companies, they tell us, control 80% of the U.S. meat industry, and Moink is helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. We got a box of Moink from Moink. Steaks and bacon, chicken and lamb. We haven't tried everything in it, but uh, everything we've tried is out of this world. It is so good. It will come as no surprise that our animals wanted to try it too, but we didn't let them. This was just for us. I particularly loved the ribeye steak and the sausages were not there where we had the sausages. So I don't remember. Was it bratwurst? I don't actually remember. It but was they bratwurst. Were, they were amazing. Delicious. Yeah. Uh, so the animals um, 
are that are, that are the source for moink are raised outdoors. Uh, that is the mammals and the and the birds. Their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. I love everything about Moink. The fact that the meat is grass-fed, finished on small farms, the lovely publications that come along with it. Frankly, it reminds me a little bit of uh, of what Gourmet Magazine was in its heyday before it went belly up. And of course, the meat itself. So join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash darkhorse right now to get a year of ground beef for free. Then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box, change what you get each month, cancel any time. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash darkhorse. That's moinkbox.com slash darkhorse. Point of order. In this case, ground beef is as opposed to steaks. It is not as opposed to arboreal beef. Nope, nope. They actually do not yet deliver the tree cow beef. No. No. I. We should talk to them about that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Second ad for the week is, you feel like you, you, you did it? I did my, okay. I, my I did the heavy lifting there. I feel like you, you set it up and then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like it's the easier job. <laughs> yep. Just color commentary. I think that's more or less where I was. <laughs> okay. Our second sponsor for this week is Allform, a company that makes absolutely terrific custom sofas. And I got to say, uh, where we are right now, we could use an Allform sofa. Yeah. Right? Um, we it. We have, yeah, miss it. Um, what makes an all-form sofa terrific? Well, you can customize your size, layout, and materials easily for a fraction of the cost of traditional sofas. Fabric, color, size, and shape are all customizable. They do armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight-seat sectional. And you can start small and buy more seats later on without needing to get a whole new sofa. All-form sofas are delivered directly to your home, free and fast. Assembly is easy. We got a beautiful sectional all-form sofa in the whiskey leather, as we've said before. It's soft and supple and warm, unlike a lot of leather. Uh, We pile on it to watch movies some evenings. It looks gorgeous. It's incredibly inviting and comfortable, a rare combination. Also, some listeners have asked if all-form holds up to pets, and our experience certainly has been that it does. Uh, The leather that all-form uses is about 20% thicker than typical furniture leather, and it shows no wear, despite the fact that both cats and the dog lie on the couch many evenings. And if you prefer fabric, all form fabrics are about three and a half times more durable than the industry standard for heavy duty fabrics. So their fabrics are going to hold up really well to pets as well. And they offer a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash darkhorse. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform, A-L-L-F-O-R-M dot com slash darkhorse. And third ad for today, excuse me, is Vivo Barefoot, another one of our absolutely favorite sponsors. Most shoes are not made for your feet. They are made for someone's idea of what feet should look like and do and be constrained by, and usually that someone doesn't actually know what feet are um, or what they can do. Vivo Barefoot, in contrast, knows feet and isn't driven by fashion. We love these shoes. They're beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. And basically, they're just fantastic. Your feet, as ours, are the product of millions of years of evolution. I have edited this script, and I took evolution out somehow. So at the moment, it says your feet are the products of millions of years of. (laughs) I I believe that should read evolution. Yeah, Millions of years of intelligent design. (laughs) Yes. That's some slow design. And barefoot is. is the result of years of intelligent design. That is actually true. That's actually true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Intelligent design meets evolution. 
In vivo barefoot. Yes. There it is. I mean, maybe we've done it. Now, humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot, but modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot, foot function and are contributing to a health crisis, one in which people move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. So Vivo barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural, natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength, it has been uh, demonstrated in research, increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. And as we've said before, we both keep running into people in the world who are wearing them or who do wear them and have seen us wearing them and say, hey, you know, those are, those are great shoes. It's an odd little club, the Vivo Barefoot Club, but it's growing. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to want to stop. So go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 20% off. And all new customers get a 100-day free trial, so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That is V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse for 20% off. Yep. Free trial, free clinical trial if you work in a clinic. <laughs> but in no way randomized. Right. No. Random walking. Well, actually, random walking is kind of a thing, but more a thought experiment, markets, that sort of yes. phenomenon. Indeed. All right. All right. Those uh, of you who are driving, keep your eyes open. The rest of you can open them back up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we, um, like I said, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about higher ed today um, to start, in part because the University of Austin was announced this, this week, uh, now six days ago, to um, some jeers, but a lot of cheers. And, um, and I am cautiously optimistic that this really could be the institution that many of us have been have been waiting for. We, of course, have um, a lot to say about what higher ed can be and what it should not be. And, uh, and you know, we've, we've written some about this in various places. I'll be, again, writing more about it for my Substack on Tuesday. And, you know, one thing that I will, will say to start is that it is true that much of the, you know, the, the thing that catapulted us into the public eye, in part, was that uh, Evergreen blew up in the in the midst of a sort of a woke revolution, an ideology that affords no dissent and is not interested in um, you know, really pursuing uncomfortable truths very um, very effectively, if at all. In fact, um, some. Some believers in the ideology, the woke ideology, if you will, uh, actually dismiss ideas like merit and um, absolute um, truth, objective reality, uh, and and obviously a university that uh, in which that is that is happening is not going to be very effective at educating people. Nor is the research that takes place at such a university going to be um, necessarily the best research that could be happening. You know, some research programs may continue sort of under the radar of such a thing, but uh, many research programs. Um, it won't. But um, that thing, that thing that is taking over universities in, in very modern times, uh, could not have gotten, gotten a hold if the universities weren't already weakened, right? So, you know, we, we argue and have argued before and will continue to argue that the woke ideology is, uh, needs to go, it, you know, no successful university can be intact with it in place. Uh, but a university that is free of that um, will not necessarily free itself of all of the incentives, all of the perverse incentives that have rendered modern universities um, 
really out of touch with uh, what a, a pursuit of truth should be should engage with. Yeah, I, I would argue um, effectively this is an autoimmune disorder that made the universities vulnerable to wokeism. But what that implies is that if you rid yes. the, the the body ac- academic of wokeism, you won't have cured the underlying disease, and therefore it will be vulnerable to other ridiculous ideologies. And it will. Uh, I think you've been gentle here. It's not that they're failing in their mission. They are actually engaged in the inverse of their mission. They're actively miseducating students. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of reasons that they might do that. But the the basic point actually comes down to something that we've uh, said many times on Dark Horse, which is zero is a special number, mm-hmm. right? The idea that in a an era in which universities are actively miseducating their students, that there is not a single exception where those of us who find this absurd can send our kids is remarkable. Because certainly, even if you imagine that most people want this, which most people clearly don't, but even if you imagine, if you grant that most people want this change, there are a lot of us who are alarmed. The work change. Right. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of us who are alarmed, who are now looking around saying, well, okay, we have uh, kids on the verge of college age. There's literally not a single place to send them. Yeah. I mean, people, um, former students with family members who are now trying to go to college um, and and perfect strangers as well, contact you and me both. Um, you know, generally, we get more than one question a week. And, you know, certainly I've gotten many, many of these of, of late saying, where where can I go? Where can I send my kids? Where can I send my cousin? You know, where, you know, what, given what you guys saw that was possible and were able to do at Evergreen, because Evergreen really was an extraordinary model that got captured, that got gamed. Where where can they go now? And for a couple of years, uh, you know, twenty end of 2017, 2018, one of the things I was saying to people was, well, it's, you know, it's it's quite hard to get into, of course, but the University of Chicago with its you know strong stand for freedom of inquiry and the so-called Chicago principles, uh, does suggest that that is an institution that is going to resist this sea change. Uh, but but no, you know more modern evidence suggests the University of Chicago too is falling. You know, yes, giving further credence to your zero is a special number. It's falling slower than other institutions, but nonetheless, you know the fact is, in a market. It's not like only the majority gets catered to. And the fact that there's no institution that will deliver the good that so many of us are demanding, and also, of course, if you project forward, uh, college students who go to an institution that isn't actively miseducating them mm-hmm. will also be presumably in high demand in a job market where people actually want stuff done. And so, you know, that university will rise through the ranks of all universities as its graduates go on to do important things and be recognized. So there Absolutely. is a huge mystery at the bottom of this, which is why do we not have at least a diversity of models uh, in competition with each other? Um Right. Instead of instead of universities advertising to future students that they have resort-like grounds and you know, lazy rivers and such, um, as um, as is the case at, for instance, LSU, uh, we would be you know a university could advertise that yes, you will probably have fun here, but you will have fun because a life of the mind is extraordinarily exhilarating and joyous. And there you know yes, there are other ways to have fun as well, but. You know, education, not indoctrination, 
And, uh, and oh, by the way, you're going to be in high demand. So, you know, this is, uh, I, I do not believe in the model of universities as a jobs program, right? right. As, as you do not. Um, but part of, um, part of what students who are, you know, thinking about spending four years or more of their life somewhere need to consider is, is this degree um, ridiculous? You know, will anyone take this seriously? Um, and indeed, will I be able to think better about the world on the other end of it? And all too often, um, the answer is no, right? <clears throat> and so one of the things that the University of Austin is going to try to do is um, stay away from a number of the sort of the, the funding traps um, that have limited what questions can be asked at other at other universities and it's it's tricky um, and it you know it involves you know there, there are a number of ways that once you are beholden to especially federal money then um, then they can change what it is that you do and how you do it and so everything from the giant grants the NSF and NIH and DOD grants and such that um, faculty are encouraged to bring in which then drives science faculty into further grant getting and drives other faculty too often grievance studies faculty into positions of prominence and governance such that they are taking over the running of the university um, that's you know that's one problem and then the fact that organizations um, federal organizations like the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health actually end up having say, in what kinds of questions get answered by virtue of upregulating some kinds of research programs and driving extinct others. That's one problem. Uh, when you have, um, when you rely as a university on um, to get any sort of um, lower or lower middle income students in on um, under Pell Grants, um, then that's another um, way that universities have uh, that universities are beholden to the federal government, and then of course accreditation. And so, you know, the accreditation question is one that uh, maybe we'll save mostly for another time. But if you if you decide that you do not want to be beholden to the accreditors, you cannot. You are not eligible for things like NSF and NIH grants if you're faculty, or Pell grants if you're students. Uh, but Likely, that freedom, that you know, that that obvious fiscal cost comes with a freedom that is perhaps actually necessary if you are to run a university that is actually able to engage in free inquiry at this point. Well, uh, so I want to point out, um, you are uh, on the board of this uh, new effort. Mm -hmm. You and I spent a year on a project targeted at the same objective. Indeed, uh, more was, than that, 14 months, yeah. Um, the Beringia Project. And we that project is not dead, but we put it on permanent pause because we couldn't solve the question of how you get enough resources to bootstrap uh, a higher ed 2.0 institution yes. um, to make it actually catalyze. And so in any case, we did a lot of thinking, though, in that 14 months about questions like accreditation. In fact, I believe that was our very first decision was that mm -hmm. accreditation was the mechanism that causes zero to be the number of functional institutions. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is a prerequisite mm -hmm. to doing anything functional that you escape that. Um, and I'm very you escape accreditation. Yep. That you that you agree to pay the costs of not being accredited and that actually you are likely to reap the benefits at the point that employers keep hiring people who have been turned numbskull by miseducation, yes. right? At the point that that pattern becomes obvious and there become a, a second type of applicant that doesn't have the degree from an accredited institution, but does have some degree from an institution that isn't 
you know, in catastrophic freefall, right? At that point, then the system shifts and those employers will, out of self-interest, be seeking students who have this alternative, whatever it is. So anyway, that was our, our I believe, our first decision in the Berengia project. I believe um, so as well. And I hope that your project ends up picking some picking up some of the wisdom that we generated because I believe, you know, it has solved the problem we didn't solve, right? It, it seems it, to have figured it is, out... It is managing to attract um, quite a lot of resources already. It needs more. Right. But, yep. And so in some sense, you've got a question of how do you solve the build an institution mm -hmm. question? You need people who can figure out how to access the resources. And then there's a question of what do you do with it? And your point here, I think, is exactly the right one, which is a non-woke institution is a prerequisite to a functional institution, but it is not the institution you should be building if you're headed to, to uh, academic academia 2.0. That's exactly right. And yeah, and really, you know, one of the ways Evergreen was founded in the, I always forget, like late sixties, early seventies, you know, and it like, it like it all opened its, its doors in 72. Right. But the founding yeah, it was a couple of years was, before yeah. that, because that is always the case with new institutions. You sort of, you know, you say, okay, we're launching, but it's going to be a couple of years as we try to figure out exactly what we are. We collect the faculty, all of this, just like the university of Austin is planning. Um, and you know, some of, some of the founding principles um, are unlike any uh, for Evergreen, or unlike any that are anywhere else. And the fact that Evergreen exploded so remarkably and publicly in 2017 does not reveal that those founding principles were flawed. What it reveals is that they were gameable, that they were capturable, and indeed that they got captured. Um, I, I would say something slightly different. Okay. Um, my sense and what I said when we were teaching there and had no idea that it was going to melt down. Right. Um, is that the founders? Until the last couple of years beforehand, the yeah. founders broke every rule on the book. Mm -hmm. Like literally, we didn't have departments, right? Yep. We didn't have tenure. We had things that stood in the place of these things. Well, we had at the very beginning. I'm not sure that there was either tenure or departments. By the time we got there, there was something that was exact. In fact, a legal analog for tenure, yep. right? So you know, we can say we were tenured. Called conversion, right? But yes. my, my point is, yep. pick a rule that functions in a university. Yep. It was broken at Evergreen, right? Mm -hmm. um, no faculty member outranked any other faculty member in a technical sense, although there were those who had this equivalent of tenure called conversion, yep. and there were those who didn't, and right. there were visitors. But, but the point is, they had neutralized faculty rank. You didn't have departments. You grouped by interest area. Mm -hmm. um, and you could move around freely You could move them. around freely. Uh, I was in consciousness studies. In fact, I was the chair of consciousness studies for two years, I think. Um, but in any case, the... It's instantly hilarious to me that both you and I ended up chairing uh, these sort of, it's not departments, but these things that were, you know, fill in the blank studies, <laughs> given right. that so most of the, most of the fill in the blank studies fields are, you know, woo woo at best and, you know, and, and, and really quite terrible. But um, let me let's actually say just a few words about these for before consciousness studies, because that's going to just throw people completely. Um, environmental studies, which is the um, whatever we called it, planning unit, something um, that we were in, and I was I chaired it briefly before actually jumping ship into consciousness studies, was imagined as an actually um, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary uh, group of faculty, many of whom were natural scientists, like biologists and geologists, and some of whom were social scientists, like um, you know land planners and um, and sociologists. Um, and it really did bring together a number of the, you know, of, of the 
of the interests that a person would have if they were trying to understand what the environment is and um, how it is that humans engage with it. Consciousness studies. So consciousness studies was slightly mislabeled. Now, I do have a longstanding academic interest in consciousness, and I've written about it. So in some sense, even if the subject matter was consciousness, it might have been the right place for me. Mm -hmm. But what it really was, was faculty who were throwbacks to the initial vision of the college and were very involved in how to access the consciousness of students and grade it, right? So it was basically a grouping of people that wasn't about subject matter. It was about academic approach, Yes, um, which was an interesting thing. So I would say the lack of departments at Evergreen was not a, it was not, simply correct and it was not simply a failure it was a mixture but but the point i wanted to make is that the founders threw out every single normal structure right and they replaced it with something and half of the things they did were nonsense and didn't work and half of the things they did were brilliant and revealed things that you wouldn't know unless you ran the experiment Mm -hmm. and the problem with evergreen is that it never went back and said all right which of the alternative structures that we have here actually proves that there was something useful to be done and which of them is hobbling. Mm -hmm. And so I would just point to this one, which always troubled me. Evergreen neutralized faculty rank, right? So no faculty member outranked any other faculty member. Mm -hmm. That actually worked surprisingly well at Evergreen. Right, the fact that every that nobody right. in a faculty meeting stood up and had more power than anybody else that actually worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was a very outspoken visitor at the, at the beginning of my uh, time teaching. That's shocking. But the point is, at a university where I was a, the lowest ranking person, right, right, that would have been very dangerous and at probably the point that wouldn't you have started, worked out. Where at another institution, you would have had the 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 title of lecturer or adjunct or something. Right. right. Yeah. So anyway, this is something that worked. On the other hand, it was absolutely crippling when you wanted to interact with people from other institutions because since there was no faculty rank, what they supplanted that with was the term member of the faculty, which if you wrote a letter to the editor and you were a tenured effectively tenured professor at Evergreen, but you had to say member of the faculty made you sound like the university hadn't even hired you with a ongoing contract. So it basically subordinated, subordinated you to the rest of the world. So anyway, that Which was a place the, where they made an error. And you know, it's, it, there is going to be a tension between those who recognize that, uh, that hierarchy is abused and in too many play, too ubiquitous. And those who think that no hierarchy, um, is is going to be a solution. I guess that's actually the same the same end of the spectrum. That yeah, you know, there was a, there was a move, there was a pendulum swing away from many of the overly hierarchical ways of doing things in the '60s and, and early '70s with with Evergreen's origin, um, but it 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 went too far, right? So I I did want to actually the one thing I wanted to say about Evergreen's model was none of this, none of the no departments or faculty rank or or titles or anything, um, but something that we've talked about before, which was um, utterly extraordinary and exactly the thing that um, that an excellent undergraduate college education, I believe, can and should uh, in, engage itself with, which is full-time programs, which is the immersion of a group of students with one or more faculty in work that goes on for 10 weeks or 20 weeks or 30 weeks, you know, up to a full academic year, such that everyone actually gets to know one another 
and you really do come to be in community with one another. And, you know, yes, a lot of these sort of, you know, modern pedagogy terms like learning community and, um, and such will, will sound, will sound ridiculous to those who haven't been, you know, who haven't been swimming in these waters, but very quickly at Evergreen, I came to recognize how utterly necessary it was if you actually wanted to reach students who were coming who were coming in with all sorts of both expectations and you know when i say levels of preparedness i don't mean that uh, i don't mean that we should always be able to reach people who have neither you know interest or ability and those who have the most interest and ability but because so much of k through 12 schooling is so bad and such a poor fit for some of the most brilliant people out there. We had students, and we also we had students who had been told throughout their formal schooling that they were stupid, that they shouldn't go to college, that they um, you know needed to focus on work in the trades. And you know, very often when I had students come to me from the trades, who would say, oh, "I can't do this. You know, I know I'm not really up to this." I'd say, "You know, what have, what work have you been doing? You've been working with physical systems successfully. You know, as a forklift operator, as a carpenter, whatever. And you know, if 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 you've been doing that successfully, you haven't killed anyone. You have, you know, you, the things that you're building aren't falling down." Um, of course you have capacity. And, you know, if you have been told that this kind of capacity that happens in an institution of higher ed is a fundamentally different kind of capacity than what you're doing, then, you know, that's, that's on them, not on you. So, okay. You point to the full-time programs and I think people really don't, if, unless you've been in the system as either student or professor, you really don't understand how radically different this is. Yeah. Professors teach one class full-time, students take one class full-time and it can go on for a full year. So the level at which you know each other is remarkable. Yeah. The other thing, though, coupled with that, was the freedom to teach yes. anything you wanted to teach in any way you wanted to teach, so long as students showed up and were moderately happy. The freedom of choice and of inquiry for both faculty and students. Right. Now, the problem is that system is gameable, mm -hmm. right? Student uh, Professors who want to um, not teach mm -hmm. and be popular can do it in that structure and evergreen had no way of eliminating them so you had lots of people hanging on to jobs that they weren't doing very well sure. um, so the point is how do you get the benefit of the full-time programs which is amazing for anybody who wishes to figure out what's possible in a classroom yeah. and the benefit of the freedom without paying the cost of lots of dead wood on the faculty and, and so so this is a place where if you took the lesson of what worked at Evergreen and the lesson of what didn't work, you could figure out what to do for a 2.0 institution. Indeed. And this actually, this is a good segue to, uh, and I think I've mentioned it on the show before, My what I thought was a very low bar, uh, three-part, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> a low bar, three-part rubric for whether or not you should be allowed to educate at any level, really, but specifically... Uh, it's one that I developed for college professors when I was noticing that um, too many of our colleagues didn't meet uh, one or more of these of these criteria. Three part rubric for whether or not you should be um, in front of in front of students at all. Um, you must know something real that you can communicate while believing in the fundamental humanity of all of your students. You are not you don't need to believe that all of your students are equal. In fact, you you shouldn't. Um, they're not. They're not the same. But they all are equally deserving 
of an opportunity to discover what it is that they're capable of. And most people arrive at higher ed having been in one way or another failed by their educations to date. Even, and maybe in some ways especially, uh, those students who show up with the 4.0s from elite college prep schools with the, you know, 18 extracurriculars and, you know, having been, having been lauded the entire time for being um, exactly what the world and their parents and their, and their prep schools and their fancy prep schools want them to be. They too often will show up, and we had those students. Um, we didn't have as many as we would have if Evergreen had been a you know a selective elite private liberal arts college rather than a public liberal arts college. But we had those students, and some of them were extraordinary, and some of them weren't. Um, but too many of them, and of course this would be true, uh, were in no way motivated from their own internal sense of what it is that they wanted to do in the world. They all too often had, you know, yes, maybe discovered that this instrument rather than that and this sport rather than that, but they were better were better for them. Um, but they had sort of a, a, a checklist and they would too often come into our classrooms expecting the checklist, being motivated by the external carrot and stick people in the front of the room, you know, by the sage on the stage that we were as professors and that all the other professors were. And frankly, most faculty, it's easier to teach to someone who accepts, who expects a checklist, because all you have to do is generate the checklist, hand it to them. And if they do meet your checklist, then you write them at Evergreen a good narrative evaluation or at any other school, you know, give them a good grade. And if they don't, then, then they get a bad grade. That's much simpler than actually getting to know the person and and trying, as we did in very many ways. We, we had a lot of different kinds of assignments by which we tried to uh, reveal to the students that if whether they were internally or externally motivated to discover and become their best selves, discover what their passions and skills were and become their best selves. And um, if they weren't, if they, if they could be revealed to themselves to be externally motivated, how to change that, how to move that locus of control from outside to inside, that is the thing, right? So um, you, you were going to say, so I, th I think this rubric is very important. Yes. You need to know something real, you need to be able to communicate it, and you need to fundamentally believe in the humanity of all of your students. But that first one knowing something real, I think doesn't necessarily mean what most people think it will mean. Yeah, this is uh, crucial. Now, if, if you, I remember having this conversation with many students mm -hmm. who come in confused about a lot of things, right? You, you, sure. We had conversations at the beginning of our programs about uh, the fact that the environment seems like uh, a consumer environment where they are the consumer and therefore they're, you know, that, that it's a market and that you have the rights of the consumer in a market. No, you're not a consumer of information. You're also not, this is not a pseudo job. You're not producing things in the world that are likely to be important after college. So what are you doing? And the, the recognition, once you strip it down from all of the stuff that looks like some analog for a job or looks like some analog for shopping, um, what you're left with is that the real purpose of undergraduate, undergraduate education is the upgrading of the mind so that it is capable of high-quality, rigorous thought. Right yes. now, there may be quadrants of the university where that's not a perfect description, but the basic point is you're not really teaching material. Right to pick up material is useful in the process, but you're really using material 
as a training ground for high quality thinking, for the ability to detect what a true idea is and what an attractive false idea is and how you would distinguish the two. And so... Can, can I just sure. add here, I think, um, you know, as there, will be, there will be faculty everywhere who, you know, the good faculty mostly, who will be screaming at this. It will say, what, you know, what are you talking about? And I think, and apologies if you made this distinction, but um, there really is distinction here between grad school and, and undergrad. And, um, you know, we found in these full-time programs that we could really go, go deep um, with students with, you know, in evolutionary biology and, you know, the kinds of, the kinds of thinking that are in A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century really were developed in part in those classrooms, around campfires, in the field, in the labs with students. That said, you go to grad school in a subject to become an expert in that subject. That's what grad school is. And, you know, professional schools like medical school and, and law school, um, the same thing, right? These are understood to effectively be jobs programs at, at, at some level, right? Undergrad isn't supposed to be that. And so whether or not you're a philosophy major or a history major or a biology major, by and large, if you're talking about major, and again, Evergreen actually didn't have majors either, but um, you know, history professors teaching undergraduates shouldn't be imagining that they're training historians. And biology professors teaching undergraduates shouldn't imagine that they're training future biologists. And philosophy professors teaching undergraduates should not imagine that they are training future philosophers. They are, they are teaching people how to have a life of the mind, how to be problem solvers, how to recognize inconsistencies in logic, how to observe and make hypotheses about what it is that they're seeing, whether or not they think they're doing science at all. All of these things are actually necessary. And you can get there through history. You can get there through philosophy. You can get there through biology. You can get there through, you know, all, almost all disciplines, you know, with the exception all real of, disciplines. All, right. And I was, you know, like, okay, so who gets to be the arbiter of what's real? Well, you know, so, some people, a lot of people will agree that a number of the new disciplines aren't real, but there are a tremendous number of ways that you can get to, uh, understanding how to view the world and whether or not you say or on your diploma it says that you specialized in you majored in history or philosophy or literature or anthropology or chemistry or physics or biology you should be able to to make similar kinds of assessments about the world rather than think ah well i'm four years into becoming a philosopher for some people that is how they view it but for the vast majority of people who don't go on to do anything in their lives that is a match for what their college degree says, consider that, you know, we're, we're not actually, college is not actually supposed to be about that tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of people who go on to graduate school in those subjects. Yeah. And how, how devastating in an era where we really don't know what the future is going to look like in terms of what people will do for a living, if that's even how it works. Yeah. Um, you, you know, narrowly targeting some set of uh, information and even skills is uh, is a fool's errand, or at least a very serious gamble. And you know, if you look at what we did, we used evolutionary biology to train minds. If you thought of us as training people to be evolutionary biologists, you know, I think only a small number, three or four people in our history at the college went on to uh, get PhDs in in uh, evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. On the other hand... But that never felt like uh, a failure. That right. was never the intention. And indeed, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but I remember, especially since one of my sort of flagship programs is animal behavior, um, <clears throat> I would say to students at the beginning of a program, because you know, so many people think 
they love animals and therefore they, they want to be animal behaviorists. And the fact is that actually doing the work of animal behavior is for most people mind-bogglingly dull or uncomfortable or just not actually what they want to do. And so I felt like one of my jobs was to make sure that those people who really thought this is what they wanted to do discovered now in college that this is not what they wanted to do so that they could go on to figure out what else they wanted to do. And still, despite that disclaimer that I was uh, would give at the beginning, I would have students who would come to me apologetic. I don't think I want to do this for, you know, for a living. I don't think I want to be a biologist. To which my reaction was always great, not great, you know, thank God you're leaving, but great, terrific that I was able to help you figure out something about what your future might be, even if in this case it is not this. And you know, these were not students who then said, and I, and I can't be in this program anymore or I'll never learn from you again. These were often students who then continued to take programs with me precisely because it wasn't, you know, they were interested in the material. They just saw that what they had in their head as being, you know, a, a wolf biologist in Montana or something may, was not going to be their future, but they still wanted to learn how to think. Right. And, you know, the, you can see, if you think about viewers of the podcast will have been through a certain amount of evolutionary thinking here, you can see that although, yes, it is narrowly applied uh, in general to things that meet the, the definition of um, adaptive evolutionary dynamics, that though that a mind skilled in understanding uh, how adaptive evolution works is then a mind that is actually very well prepared to understand things like economics, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you may never have taken anything in school that involves immunology. But the fact is, um, one can directly apply what one understands from the adaptation of creatures to the adaptation of information inside the immune system and therefore the ability to fend off diseases. So, you know, the ability to recognize game theory, the difference between a complex system and a complex adaptive system, these are things that apply across our lives. And yeah. Um, and so in any case, it is a tremendous thing to study. Even we had many students who arrived because of enthusiasm of other students, even though they didn't particularly think they cared about biology. Mm -hmm. And the basic point is I want something interesting. And it's like, yes, that's right. exactly why you should be here. Yeah. And yeah. We had, we had a number of students, <clears throat> um, even ultimately in the, the advanced programs, uh, who, you know, would continue to say, I just don't think I'm good at science. I don't, I, I, you know, I never thought that and I'm not sure that I'm good at science. It's like, oh, but you know, science then isn't what you think it is. You know, again, I, I use this maybe too much, but it's not the signifiers of science. It's not the guy wearing the lab coat, holding the glassware or running the expensive um, scientific equipment, equipment is there for a scientist. All too often, not quite the opposite. It's the, it's the process of science and the intellectual tools that we use to understand what is true. Yeah, in fact, uh, I remember from being an undergraduate that um, there was a particular process that was inflicted on undergraduates in biology because too many of them wanted to go on to be doctors. Right. And so, you know, effectively the reason to put people through the exercise of learning the Krebs cycle, and I don't mean knowing that it exists, right. right, knowing what it does, but the purpose of learning the individual steps in the Krebs cycle is largely non-existent. Mm -hmm. Right. But it does discourage a lot of people from applying to medical school because they drop out of biology as a major. So the point is, mm -hmm. this is really not about an upgrade. It's about the university solving its own problem. And if you were going to. Well, it's also it's a test of memorization, but also kind of of compliance. Yep. Right. Like, OK, 
you know, how many doctors actually need to know, or, you know, professional biologists like research, research scientists or doctors um, have to know the molecular details of the Krebs cycle. Some do, and there's, they can always learn it. Very, right. very few do. Uh, and yet, you know, that and, you know, for undergraduate degrees, often it was also organic chemistry, right? right? Um, which, uh, you know, is, is vastly fascinating and necessary for those people who are doing the kind of work for which it is necessary. Um, but the way that it tends, was tending to be taught at least um, up until very recently, and I just don't know at this point, was very much, again, as a test of memorization. And it was, it was a flaming hoop you had to jump it was through. A, it's a weed out. Yeah. And you know, why, why would we, as a society, want to compel the vast majority of people that science is boring, uninteresting, and too hard for them? And thus leave them completely at the um, at the disposal of you know authorities who come in wearing effectively their signifiers of scientific authority, uh, who say, "Trust us, we know that you can't do the scientific thinking for yourself, so so we're going to do it for you." And you know we see also that uh, so-called science science journalists don't have the skills. They may have been very finely trained. You know, they may well, a science journalist may well have an you know, undergraduate degree in biochemistry or something. That doesn't mean that they know how to think scientifically. Yeah. And that, you know, that is the argument that we're making, that everyone um, should, you know, everyone who emerges from an actual institution of higher ed with an undergraduate degree, with a bachelor's degree, should understand some version of how to actually think scientifically and understand the power and value of narrative and understand how art can transform, um, you know, brains and values. And, you know, we making a complete and exhaustive list, you know, fill in your favorite discipline here is going to be tough. But um, understanding how to think scientifically is very, very different from did you run a gel as an undergraduate and therefore did they give you your rubber stamp? Right. The fact is you need to know how some system works, something broad enough that mm -hmm. if your mind has gotten good at understanding how it works, that when you get to a system you don't know anything about, you can then take the information, which is of course now free, yeah. right? It's all available to us, right? You can take that information and you can say, all right, well, how would I sort this out so I know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. How does it, how does this system work? How does, if I know biology, how does weather work, right? Well, right. you know, that's a complex system without the adaptation. Mm -hmm. Right. So what would it be like to just correct what I understand from adaptive evolution, subtract the adaptive part, right? That that is a very easy process compared to bootstrapping from the beginning based mm -hmm. on facts. Yeah. Is that it for, for higher ed for right now? Uh, I have a feeling it is a topic we will return to. Oh, return I guess I would, I would say one thing just to uh, finish out the, the yeah. little riff from before. The thing that Evergreen never did because it was resistant to fixing the model that its um, founders, you know, it was a prototype. Yeah. And nobody ever got around to the 2.0 version. It was a prototype. The thing you would do to solve the problem of how do you give faculty freedom in this model with these full-time programs without accumulating a faculty full of dead wood where people figure out how to hold on to their job but without doing students uh, much good in the process Yep. is you would you would throw out the system uh, of tenure and mm -hmm. you would build a system in which people who came in, you know, we were, when we came into Evergreen, 
We didn't know how to do the evergreen job because it's not a job anybody had ever heard of before. How do you teach in a model where you have complete freedom to teach whatever you want, however you want? That's something you got to figure out. And you've out. got complete responsibility for the students. You know, you, you, you've never done this before and they're all yours. 100% of their college education for this 10, 20, 30 weeks is yours. Go. Right. And yeah. I remember how crazy it was to be told by an administrator, here's the assignment. You know, describe the your ideal course that you want to teach. Yeah, you can, then, you provide a course title and a course description, and then you you know you spend full time for a quarter. full time figuring yeah. out. And it was magic. Uh, yeah, first year was amazing, frankly. But um, but the point is, the way you fix the system yeah. is you say, "All right, welcome. You've got a job nobody knows how to do." Can you figure out how to do something really high quality with all of that freedom? And you pick a time. I would say three years is enough to figure out whether somebody can uh, can make use of that freedom or is going to squander it. And the point is, it doesn't matter how much we like you. At the end of three years, you've either demonstrated that you can do something for students that's totally worth their time or you haven't. And you basically, you know, you use selection, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you get people... Uh, on board, try to solve the problem. If they fail to solve it, you replace them with somebody else, give them the same opportunity, and you accumulate the ones who are good at it, who tend to be the ones who like it. True. Um, obviously, that system nominally existed there, as it does kind of everywhere that has um, that has tenure, where you know you get hired to tenure track, and then there is an assessment, usually after more like five or six years, of whether or not you have done sufficiently um, important work in your research and have sufficiently good teaching and have done your bare minimum of governance, such that you uh, will be granted tenure. Uh, what you are arguing is a you know, maybe a more selective process where the job itself, um, having gotten the job, is terrific, but you shouldn't actually assume, as many, you know, many people do, most institutions, um, and certainly this is true at Evergreen, um, will tend to default you into tenure if you did kind of bare minimum stuff. And especially if you're talking about a model of education that is very different from what other schools do, as we think is, um, is you know, just practically necessary in order to do to actually educate undergraduates well, um, then you would want a, a truly um, a truly assessing moment. And then perhaps, and we've talked about this before, and I'm not, you know, I, we don't have the complete model worked out exactly, but then perhaps not tenure at all, but a system in which you have ever longer contracts as you get, you know, assessed, you know? Yeah, that's that's one way. I mean my sense is three years in, you knew who was going to make use of the freedom and who didn't. And so I don't know that you need ever longer contracts because I don't know that people who make good use of the freedom at six years in are going to stop doing it at 12. But what you need is a system I mean, in we, which... But we, but we see that. We see that in other schools, you know, because, you know, for people who don't know higher ed at all, the sort of inside baseball is at a, at a normal school. Um if you're hired into a tenure track position, which is to say you are on track to get tenure, um, you're hired at the assistant professor position. And then um, if you get tenure, you're upranked to associate professor. And then there's one more leap you can make generally to full professor. And it is both a, uh, a truism and kind of true um, that all too often the oldest faculty, the faculty who have been around for longest, who actually have the least to lose because they are full professors and they absolutely should have the courage of their convictions to stand up and object to things that are happening that aren't true, are the most likely to just not be doing very innovative work anymore. Yeah, but I mean, that's also in a different system. And the thing, the thing that makes this applicable to something like Evergreen was that effectively these jobs were great jobs 
if freedom was something that you valued, yeah. right? They yeah. were not great jobs from the perspective of, you know, how much they paid, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, in a sense, the incentive, you know, a tenured position at a R1 university may not be a very interesting a big job. big research university. Um, yeah. But it may, you know, provide a, a safe haven for, you know, people who've lost interest in their discipline or whatever. Right. So anyway, th there's some model to be had, but basically the point is you don't want to accumulate people who are going to uh, squander the freedom, and there's a way to figure out who those people are. Um, so, you know, 2.0 would look something like that. Very good. Um, I think a decent segue uh, from here is actually you know, every week we take in our Q&A a question from our Discord server. Uh, they, they vote and decide which question they'd like to ask us. And this week's Discord question is actually apropos enough here that I think we're going to do it in the main part of the podcast. So we got asked this week uh, from people who are, are patrons of ours uh, and therefore have access to the Discord server. You've described religion as a Chesterton's fence. Given the impact of genuine belief, do you think the fence is removed without believing that it is actually true, even if keeping some traditions? In other words, is it reductionist thinking to just take the traditions without the belief? If so, how have you resolved this? It's a great question. It is an excellent uh, question. And I think maybe just before um, jumping into the question, we should say, as we have many times before, what Chesterton's fence is. So this is the observation by G.K. Chesterton in 1929, I think. Uh, that if you have two people walking along and they run into a fence and one of them says, I'll get rid of it, uh, it's my way. Uh, the other one uh, and all of us should say, ah, you, you cannot, you should not be allowed to get rid of a fence until you can tell me what its purpose is. Simply finding that it is currently in your way is not sufficient reason. You need to be able to tell me what its function was and what it's supposed to be before we can even consider having the conversation about, um, about whether or not it is, it is, it no longer has the function that it was intended to have. So uh, in Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, we talk about the very many ways that Chesterton's fence shows up in modernity, Chesterton's appendix, Chesterton's breast milk, and Chesterton's religions. Right. Uh, so basically, this is a hedge against the problem of to the extent that you have solved or partially solved a problem, you may not realize that that's what you've done because the problem is not there in evidence. And so removing right. the solution will regenerate the problem. Right. Uh, I'm at the moment thinking about defunding the police, right? Because <laughs> Chesterton's police. Because some <laughs> cops are bastards, right? Yes, Chesterton's cops is what it is because the fact is you have no idea how much crime isn't happening because the polite police do function until you re remove them, which we are now seeing all over the place, predictably yes. enough. Well, some cops are bastards and some protesters are bastards. Both things are true. Both things are simultaneously true. Mm -hmm. All right. So to this, to the Discord question, the question really, if I can sum it up, is if you've if religions are compendiums of ancient wisdom, as we argue that they are, mm -hmm. um, prescriptive, and you remove the part where you actually believe in a sky god, let's say, mm -hmm. and you just keep the traditions, right, that thou shalt not this and, you right. know, uh, treat other people this way, uh, have you violated the Chesterton's fence provision or not? If you throw right. out the belief but not the uh, the structures. And I would say it is very much a mixture, right? Mm -hmm. That the fact is there's certain aspects of religion that only work because of people's belief, right? Right. So to the extent that a lot of that thou shalt not stuff comes with a threat, mm -hmm. if yep. thou does, thou ends up in a lake of fire, right? <laughs> That's a very strong motivator because the point is who decides if you get in a lake of fire? 
Well, it's the sky god who you can't get away from, right? right? And so it is built such that a true believer actually is held back in a way that somebody who is not a true believer, sufficient, you know, an atheist, for example, might find leeway. And the two of them in competition, the atheist will outcompete the believer in a market because they will avail themselves of opportunities that uh, that are forbidden, etc. So there's a way some of the structures absolutely require belief. And some of the structures are just simply, you know, uh, descriptions of things so that a non-believer who simply enacts the tradition will get the benefit. So like Lent, for example, right? If Lent is a mechanism for people to break an addiction, mm-hmm. right? And the idea is everybody knows what it is that's harming you that you can't stop doing. And you get around to Lent and you say, all right, I'm going to not do that during Lent, right? That doesn't require that you believe that a sky god is watching you unless you're going to violate your own rule and imagine that you held to it. But, you know, sober October is uh, a kind of secular Lent-like behavior and lots of people who don't believe in a sky god involve themselves in it and succeed in getting through a month. Um, so anyway, it's a, mi- it's a mixture of um, things that do work without belief and don't. But the, the final thing I'll say, and then I'll let you jump in here, is that does not mean you can't solve it with a compartmentalization. Yeah. Right? This is kind of where I was going to go, yeah. Right. So yeah. lots of people, um, I mean, this is uh, rampant in Judaism, is there are all kinds of Jews who have some kind of a complex relationship with the metaphysical part of the belief structure, mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that if you ask them what they believe, what you get back doesn't allow you to figure it out, mm-hmm. right? That the point is there's some internal structure that, does sort of functionally believe in a deity, but a, you know, practical structure that doesn't include it in the analysis of analytical things. Um, and so uh, there, are, there are ways it can, can be made to, to hybridize. Yes. And I think actually, I'm not, I'm not sure this works, but as you were talking, I was thinking we, when we were talking about higher ed, we're talking about the locus of control and, um, you know, asking, you know, trying to educate people so that if their locus of control was external, that they that it came to be internal. And so people actually had not just the agency, but the motivation to find their true selves and, and you know, and to, to those true selves be true. Uh, but I wonder about the locus of belief. I wonder about the, con, uh, you know, speaking, you know, in the sort of language of locus of control, if, um, if we can't, in a more secular 21st century, uh, to which we all belong, whether or not you have um, you understand yourself to have faith in a god or not, um, that many of us have effectively moved the locus of belief from um, an external sort of sky god character to actually, um, I I need to honor those morals and principles that I have described for myself. Um, because I will not be able to sleep. I will not be able to live with myself. I will not be able to face my loved ones and my friends if I don't do what is honorable and good. And it sort of, you know, it, it moves, it moves the locus of belief from, uh, a, uh, a, a totally abstract, uh, never seen force to, yes, it's still abstract and never seen inside, but it brings you closer to the, to the thing. And I, I, I'm reminded, and I think we've probably told this story on this podcast before, but I'm reminded of us being in Madagascar in 1990, 
three, I guess it would have been, right before we started grad school. Uh, this was our after-college trip that our parents uh, were generous enough to, um, to, uh, to pay for us to go on. And instead of going on a tour of Europe, we went to Madagascar. And at one point, at the end of a, gosh, I think it was like a 670-kilometer trip across the southern part of Madagascar, which took, if that number is right, 67 hours, whatever it was. We had an average speed of 10 kilometers an hour for more than two days. Um, really quite exhausting. And on that um, Taxi Bruce ride, we ended up making the acquaintance of uh, of a young man who invited us to have dinner with his family once we got to our destination, you know, a, a day or two later after we had managed to clean all the dust off of ourselves. Um, and I'm so, not sure I've fully cleaned all yeah, the dust off. Yeah, you may. I've been noticing a little bit behind that, that, uh, that one ear. Oh, still it's funny. a diminishing return problem. I'll never quite get <laughs> no. there. <laughs> well, forever after, we are a little bit made of Malagasy dust, yep. a little bit red. Um, very iron rich. Uh, but so we were invited to the home of this Malagasy judge and her family. And, uh, they spoke some English and, um, they were fluent in French and I spoke some French. Um, <clears throat> we didn't speak any Malagasy, but in talking with them, we were having I a- also speak some French, but it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we at some point, and I don't remember the run up to this, but they asked us uh, what religion we were, and uh, I said we didn't have any religion, and the mood in the room changed immediately. And um, I, I, you know, I, I remember it, and maybe this is just a sort of a cartoonish uh, memory, is that they sort of like backed off of you know away from us across the table and it became clear that things were now fairly tense and that they weren't actually sure that they could trust us and these you know this was maybe an hour or more into the conversation we're, we're breaking bread with them well malagasy we're breaking rice with them um but suddenly we were very very different and it wasn't just that they didn't know what to make of people who didn't claim a religion it was, and this became clear in the conversation that then ensued, um, that you know, one of them asked us, and I think it may have been the judge herself, said, how, how is it then that you can be trusted to make the right decisions, right? And what, as I remember, what we said in response was, well, um, we are beholden to our own morality and you know understand that we would not be able to live with ourselves and also that we that you know we have the eyes of each other that everyone needs to have the eyes of some someone's you know they're in in their family um on them willing to say um not just willing but obliged to say if um if they are breaking their own um sense of values and, and ethics actually that thing that wasn't the right thing to do Yes, although, you know, it's funny, that event, I remember it quite vividly, and I have more sympathy with their perspective. Now than you did? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this is, this is, there is a point to be made on both sides. There's certainly mm -hmm. many, many people like you and me who have replaced the sky god structure that keeps you in line with some other structure that keeps you in line, right? And not perfectly for anybody. Whether right. you're a sky god sure. believer, you know what I mean? That's what confession is presumably about, is people repeatedly screwing up and uh, needing to, you know, wipe the slate clean. But the the point is, it. I'm not sure that part of what we're seeing in the breakdown of civilization isn't that we crossed some threshold and the number of believers has dropped. And so the, you know, the change in the way people monitor their own morality, right? If the market mm -hmm. is sort of 
taking the place of a guide, right? Well, then it, you do, you know, I don't know what exactly the, uh, you, you do get a kind of hedonistic view. And, you know, we are now watching, you know, as the police have been defunded, we are watching, there was sort of a grace period where lots of people still continued to behave as they had behaved because they were in the habit of behaving that way. But people are beginning to discover that certain things aren't being enforced. And if they're not being enforced, some people will continue not to do them because they should be enforced. And some people will say, well, if they're not being enforced. Yeah, it was actually the enforcement that was keeping me in line. And that's, you know, that's, that's a problem for, for those people and therefore for society that those people exist. But some people do, you know, do require the external you know, belief or force or whatever it is. Right. And, you know, so at some level, I think it's not a bad analogy to say that there is something mm -hmm. about the absence of deep belief in a... Uh, a punishing and rewarding God mm -hmm. that is like taking the safety off the gun, which mm -hmm. is far from discharging the gun. Yeah. But the point is, it is one step in that in that chain. And um, so, you know, I, I also think that this is one of these two-way failures of empathy, mm -hmm. right? Where empathy, I won't make the argument here, but empathy basically is you using your own mental architecture to figure out what somebody else is going to think or do by running the data that you have about their situation through your own computer. Mm -hmm. And the point is that works really well if your computer looks like theirs and it works really badly if it doesn't. And in the case that it looks somewhat like it, it's somewhere in between. And I think there's a, there was a part of us that at, how old were we? At the then, uh, 24, 24 years old at 24 mm -hmm. years old, did not really understand what it was like to have lived a life that was so so uh, thoroughly religiously guided, yeah, and then to encounter people who sounded like atheists. I will not. I do not. You you don't own that term. I don't believe in atheists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the oh yeah <laughs> the um, such a person has a hard time understanding if if you know that you are your behavior is constrained by your belief that a sky god is not going to be too happy about you doing x y or z then you may not understand well then if i didn't have that person watching me then i would presumably do all those things well how do i know you won't right yeah. that that is a failure of empathy and then our failure to understand that actually they had a point and maybe we are even seeing that point mm -hmm. you know expanding across civilization as we do get more secular well i mean i to be fair, though, you know, they didn't ask us to leave. Right. You know, we, we did. We did come to an understanding that felt sufficient at the time. Yep. And uh, no time to explore all of this today here, but uh, it should just be noted that you know, okay, so these this judge and her family were asking us what religion we had, um, and we've said multiple times that they, you know, they were religious folk in a in a way, you know, not uh, you know, not pious in the way of some say, you know, an Italian grandmother. Um, but uh, but you know, what religion would it have been? They were Christian. The Christian um, the Christians having shown up in Madagascar sometime. Um, presumably during the French colonial period, uh, sometime in the, I don't actually know exactly when, but either late 19th or more likely or early mid 20th century. Um, and Christianity largely replaced the traditional animist beliefs um, that are still in evidence. You know, you still have, for instance, turning of the bone ceremonies, which I was lucky enough to attend one of these and uh, in which the ancestors are disinterred on on a regular basis and and talked to, you know, every, that depending on which tribe it is. They're caught um, up. They're brought up to speed. They're brought up to speed on what's happened. Um, 
and you know, as I've I've noted elsewhere, you know, they're brought up to speed on births and marriages and the harvest, and they're probably not brought up to speed explicitly on who's died because presumably the ancestors already know that. Yeah, right? yeah, they were they're they're hanging out with the other people who've died since last they spoke. But anyway, there's still animist traditions in many um, in many regards in evidence across all of Madagascar, but. Um, most people now call themselves Christians, and certainly this family was um, was Christian. Yep. All right. Is that it? I think that's it. All right. Um, we have we've been going already for uh, over an hour. Uh, we have a few more things that we are going to talk about, and I'm wondering. I definitely want to get to number seven here, but can you? Can you see? You want to put on your glasses and just see. I need binoculars uh, <laughs> actually at this distance. Um, if you want to skip either of the, you know, the apologies or the let's, let's uh, hold six off for next week. Okay, okay. Um, so let's talk just just a little bit about apologies. Uh, this was this was prompted by a conversation that you and I had, and it's something that we have again said multiple times that you know apologies are uh, necessary. They are uh, honorable and necessary. When you have done wrong, you owe an apology. And what that means is that the denigration of apology to being someone that can be prompted even when you haven't done wrong uh, actually reduces the efficacy of apology. And if you're willing to denigrate apology this way, um, that suggests that you don't actually believe that apology itself is is a value. So it did not occur to me as we were thinking about this segment, but it now occurs to me the very first assignment that I gave in my very first Evergreen course was to have students explain why apology matters. Excellent. Why should simply vibrating air molecules and saying you're sorry make any difference to anyone, yeah. right? So what, um, you, what what kinds of conversations emerged from that, or what did you have in your head? Like what, well, what, I mean, the first... What's the answer? <laughs> is, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> no, it will not be on the test, because there isn't going to be a test. But yeah. um, the... Well, first of all, uh, it was a mental revolution for most of these students to face a question like that, because they didn't... Yeah. They weren't familiar with the style of question, sure, right? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, apology is something that we all experience at some level yeah. and the question of why it works and therefore what standard, what what does work even mean? And right. the answer is, well, if I am feeling some way towards you and you violate some agreement that is presumably unstated between us, and then you apologize to me for doing so, then that changes how I feel about you. You know, the violation changes how I feel about you, and then the apology restores how I feel about mm-hmm. you. And but, I mean, but you know, and of course, more than that, if um, if you feel that I've wronged you, and I don't think I've wronged you, and maybe I don't even know that you feel that I've wronged you, either you simmer and seethe and it never comes up, and probably we just, well, in our case, it would get resolved. But you know, say we didn't know each other that well, um, you know, maybe the friendship dissolves over it because you, you're just you, it's this unresolved thing. Hopefully, more likely, at some point, at the point that you know the person who may or may not have wronged the other person um, is approached by the person who thinks they've been wronged and says, "You know, this is just this is weighing on me. I I can't I, I can't get over it. I really think that that thing that you did, uh, you know, affected me this way negatively, and you shouldn't have done it, and you owe me an apology. And if if you know one of at least two things then happens, you know the person who did or did not wrong the other person says, "Oh my God, I I didn't see it that way. I you're right. 
Or, but let me think on it for a little while. They come back and say, you're right. I didn't see it that way. I didn't know. I didn't know that other thing. Or I was just blind to the effects that I was having. That's one outcome. Another outcome is, no, actually, here's how I understand the world that makes what I did um, acceptable or right. And you know, maybe there's nuance there and says, yeah, I could have done it this way, but I actually think the way that I did do it um, is appropriate. Can we talk about whether or not you still think that I owe you an apology? And you know, the simply going like we agree to disagree and going your separate ways isn't nearly as effective because more often than not, agree to disagree is, oh my God, that person is just unable to see reason. And I hope I don't end up in another situation like them again. All right. So we're going to come back to agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. I would point out there's some other outcomes here that have, mm -hmm. uh, that tell you, that begin to tell you the answer to this question. Um, one is somebody delivers an apology that isn't an apology. One that you believe is not heartfelt or that yes. comes with a structure. Um, I'm sorry you feel that way. Yes. Well, you can be sorry you feel that way without be, being sorry that you acted the way you did. Exactly. Right. And so if you begin to get the idea that I'm when so some, sorry your brain looks the way it right, does. I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> you're forcing me to have this conversation with you, right? Um, that's not a good apology. Mm -mm. But then there's this other really interesting case where the person delivers what appears to be a genuine apology and then makes the same error again. Mm. Maybe they're just in the habit of behaving this way and doing it again. And so and they need to lose the habit. They need to learn how not to be in the habit. That's a possibility, right. Or maybe right? they're or not a trustworthy person to interact with. And so then the point is, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to continue a relationship with somebody who keeps harming me in the same way and then apologizing and it doesn't mean anything, right? right? So anyway, the basic point is what you right. really get here is obvious negotiation. Yes. Right? It is negotiation. Now, why would it be negotiation? Because if I let's say that I um I don't know. I leave you stranded somewhere for an hour, mm -hmm. right? And there's not a really good reason, mm -hmm. right? I've just been careless. And it's like, okay, do I feel the hour that I just cost you, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I do feel it, right? I'm really sorry I did that. But then it doesn't Thank change you. the behavior. You're welcome. Um, but then it doesn't change the behavior that causes it. And I do it to you again mm -hmm. and again, right? And the point is, actually... At some point, I don't let you take the car and drive away from me right. anymore. <laughs> like, I'm, right. I'm not going to accept but being stranded. But here's the thing. Yeah. When I apologize, if I've done it well, yeah. right, then you know that I know what I did, which then puts an extra responsibility on me not to do it again because you know I know. It's not like this is in my own blind spot. We've got it promoted to consciousness, mm -hmm. right, and yet I still do it. That means I don't really care that much, right? And so... You know, or... or um, it's going to take it's going to take more time than is good for you know me or you for for you to figure it out. But right. you know it's it's quite possible there's something deeply embedded enough in the habits in the way of tracking time, for instance. Right, in this and actually case, we right? do we do have this. There's stuff right. about yeah. me that you and I both agree ought to change, but you and I also both know it's not under my control. And it's, it's kind of like that. Like, you know, you don't, you don't leave me stranded like that, but there, you know, it's, there is a sort of a like, oh my God, again, you know, <laughs> again, with the not having kept track of time. And here I thought, you know, we had agreed to something, but it's not, um, it's not that you, you, you don't value my time. Right. And it's not that you misunderstand that not valuing my time is, um, okay. Uh, it's, it's an actual, you know, more slowly than either of us would like, but, you know, sort of changing assessment of, oh, okay, actually there are other, there are other 
characters, other yeah. people um, involved here, and uh, and they are also living on the same timeline that I am. Okay. Yeah. So what I believe the answer to the question is and was, and what the discussion over several days actually emerged into was that you were talking now about your classroom and the apology classroom and still it was one of the most marvelous classrooms full of eclectic students who signed up for the craziest description i could come up with. this is your first evergreen program ever this would have been like in the fall of 2003 or something yeah it was called adaptation i'm still in touch with several of the people from that and we had an extraordinarily good time even though i did not know what i was doing but um i mean that's that's part of what contributes to it yeah it was great it was it was uh very seat of the pants, but it uh, it worked well. But anyway, yeah. the point is, apology is a discussion of debt, right? It is also yeah. a promotion of the costly behavior to consciousness, which increases the chances of being able to correct the behavior going forward and increases the chances mm-hmm. that both parties will be able to see if somebody is simply just not, as you say, valuing someone else's time, for example. Mm-hmm. So- The point is, an apology, a good one, is both a promise not to do it again or to exert the proper effort to prevent doing it again Mm -hmm. and an IOU, right? Why does does it make a difference that somebody apologizes to you? Because at the point that I say, okay, I just cost you an hour, Mm -hmm. right? Am I going to give you a hard time over a half an hour somewhere else? No. In fact, what I've said is that my behavior resulted in you losing an hour that you couldn't do anything with. So, Well, and this is part of why, especially um, in romantic bonds, uh, apologies, at least from men to women, often are accompanied by gifts, right? The IOU nature of it is, um, you know, I, I, I know that I cannot... Uh, you know, if it's a legitimate apology, if it's a warranted yeah. and legitimate apology, um, I know that I cannot actually give you the thing back by which I wronged you, but, um, you know, here's some flowers or a necklace or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, it could be a symbolic gift or it could be a meaningful gift. But mm-hmm. I, I think I think actually the place to take this is in a complex relationship, what, whatever kind of relationship mm-hmm. it is, uh, sibling, spousal, whatever, that debt does not exist in isolation. Right. Yes. So the point is, yeah, it doesn't so, have you know, to the, be. The flowers don't actually shut the door on the IOU. They don't right. shut the door on the IOU. They're an advertisement that I recognize I screwed up, for example. Yeah. So the the point is, these relationships are complex, and we don't get the same. We don't. It, we're not always paid back in kind. But in order for the relationship to be durable, you have to feel that it is on balance better to be in it than out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it may be that I never fix my. Uh, not linear relationship with time and that that will have impacts. Even the producer is snickering now. (laughs) Even the producer is snickering because he's seen it too. Um, But the point is that is a cost that exists in the relationship. Mm -hmm. I am aware of an obligation to minimize it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the net effect is that that cost doesn't overwhelm the benefits um, right. So anyway, the point is, why does an apology, why does simply saying something to somebody make any difference? Well, it doesn't automatically. It right. has to. There has to be reason to think the person means it. There has to be agreement over what it is that is being apologized for. Right. And there has to be evidence that actually you take the debt seriously. Mm-hmm. If those things accrue, then the point is actually, of course, it makes a difference because an IOU from somebody, I mean, you know, why does a piece of paper make a difference when somebody says, I owe you a thousand bucks? Right. Well, because it's a legal contract. Because it ha- it holds some fraction of the value, a large fraction of the value of a thousand bucks, because you can collect on it, and yep. so 
it is that it is that style of object and um anyway we, we had a right. reason to be talking about apology but the idea that there is a very deep um uh, meaning of this and that it is unpackable but that you could certainly i mean in fact almost everybody goes an entire lifetime without ever thinking well why does that work and how does it work and what kind of object is it right 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 yeah i don't know it, it's really up to you you know we're 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 We've spent a lot of time on this now. I, whether or not you want to talk about the context in which this was showing up, you know, if it were my choice, I would just move on to Jarabs. Yeah, let's go to Jarabs. I don't frankly remember the context. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Then, then I won't. I won't force you to present it. Um, finally, uh, just briefly, last week we talked about um, Jarabs, and we explained why we pronounce it that way, which is to say that uh, a former student and friend um, taught us that that was in fact the the, the more enjoyable way to pronounce it, and the Jarabs, hey, yeah, the Jarabs themselves. Um, don't seem to mind so it's uh, hard to tell with drops i have found this too too uh, so last week we talked about zoos um i think dallas zoo maybe in particular um having said they were going to vaccinate their animals and then having several giraffes die um possibly they said of encephalomyocarditis which seemed suspicious to us suspiciously like possible vaccine aes adverse events um but uh this was brought to my attention this week. Can you, Zach, share my screen? Let's let's try. Um, oh, you are. Uh, fact check. Oh, it's frozen. Uh, okay. Uh, you know that's that's fine. Uh, I, I, oh wait, it's a little frozen now. No, it's still it's still frozen. Let's just let's uh, give me my screen back so I can. Yep. Um, we are. Seat of our pants here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we got this beautiful art behind us. <laughs> um, so Newsweek, uh, as as you saw there briefly, uh, ran a article on the 9th of November called Fact Check, colon, Did Dallas Zoo Giraffes Die After COVID Vaccine? And um, the claim in the story is that the zoo says, the zoo's claims that they haven't even received the vaccines for their animals yet, um, much less vaccinated any of them. So if this is true, um, this Newsweek fact check story, that obviously means that the animals didn't die of vaccine adverse events because they haven't even been vaccinated yet. Um, so A, we wanted to come back and say, this, this is the newest information that we have here, but we also wanted to use this as a moment to say, okay, this is an article that is literally called fact check, fact check colon. And, you know, obviously everyone at this point should be suspect of anything called fact checking. Uh, recall that the CNN article that we were uh, reading from last week suggested, quote, that it suspected the deaths of Jesse and Augie, those are the jobs, uh, it suspected the deaths of Jesse and Augie could be connected but had yet to establish definitive proof. Okay. The Newsweek article this week, the fact check, says, quote, 19-year-old giraffe Augie died on October 22nd with age-related health issues leading to liver failure. And on October 29th, 14-year-old giraffe Jesse died just days after showing signs of an illness. The blood test showed he had, quote, abnormal liver enzymes. So the fact check Newsweek article makes no explicit mention of a possible connection between the two deaths, nor does it say that the zoo had considered that, but now really feels that the deaths have no connection to one another, um, which makes it at best a incomplete fact check, and at worst, of course, not in fact about checking facts at all. Yeah, and I would say we 
if you stand in our shoes and you look at all of the fact checks, including some that have been pointed at us that were clear nonsense, you know that something has borrowed the idea of fact and is now applying that concept to things that are not facts. In fact, it is applying them to things that are in many cases the inverse of facts. And that is, of course, a dire breach of the obligation of those in a position to check facts with the rest of us. And we see this in Wikipedia, mm -hmm. which now routinely slanders people, including me. Including um, both of us now. Are you being slandered too? I believe so. I haven't gone back and looked, but that's what I hear. Well, obviously, this is a very important mechanism, a mechanism, you know, the greatest encyclopedia that has ever existed. Um, sure was. And now it is a political tool. Yep. Uh, fact checks are now political tools. The idea of a public health authority that claims things are safe and effective when evidence suggests that we cannot claim they are safe, even a conservative understanding of the term safe would not allow it to be applied to some things that is currently applied to. These are abuses of mechanisms we absolutely need. And it's as if we have forgotten the boy who cried wolf principle, right? right? There are certain things you do not violate because having violated them, you will cause a disaster. And the fact checkers are now causing this disaster. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that these giraffes, giraffes, Thank you. Um, died having not been vaccinated for COVID? Of course it's possible. Mm -hmm. Do I have any confidence that that's what happened based on the fact that fact checkers are now wagging their fingers at those who jumped at this story? I have no idea, right? right. It could be anything. We've seen all kinds of accounting fraud right. uh, in the context of COVID and vaccines. Yep. So we don't know what this is. Basically, we, we have to be agnostic. I think so. And I don't know, Zach, you could even just show the, the brief screen here. I don't know if I'll be able to scroll, but my very first post on natural selections Substack was fact checkers aren't scientists, which takes on exactly this question and indeed points out some official fact checks that have been done. Um, yeah, it's not scrolling. Um, with regard to you, and I think it was Dr. Robert Malone as well, that were you know patently false. And you know when when they are actually fact checks are actually discovered to be they don't, they sometimes don't even change the fact checks. If they do. Um, they just sort of quietly uh, you know quietly make change, and maybe no one ever sees it. But um, the fact check themselves are what get big play. And the fact is, um, just just as we were talking about, just maybe to bring it full circle, um, higher education is failing almost everyone at this point, students, faculty, even administrators, right? Um, just because there are too many administrators doesn't mean that, that most people who go into college higher administration don't want to be doing a good job and aren't interested in actually um, educating people and helping the best research be done in the world. But the fact that most people are graduating from college without an understanding of uh, what science is and uh, are oh and so we are now we're now frozen I'm not in control, but, okay uh, I think they can hear you just fine. okay uh, maybe give me my give me our regular no, screen I'm, back I'm not in control. okay um, the the fact is that most people who are doing the fact checking don't know what science is and therefore should not be in a position of uh, of getting to decide what is and is not true. Right. And, it, you know, there's one level of, uh, which the question is, are they capable of fact-checking? And then there's another question about whether they are attempting fact-checking or they're simply borrowing that voice that we follow the science borrows, you know, the, the garb of scientists in order to sell 
a, a marketing campaign. Um, now, I would suggest, I, I want to think about this, but personally speaking, I'm wondering um, either good or not well-intentioned fact-checkers, if you might think of them as locusts of control. That's good. All I right? like that. They're locusts of control. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. There it is. There it is. There it is. Yes. Well, I... Not going to put my screen back in a place where I can read it for fear. It's definitely going to delay to the world. But we're about ready to. Um, so we are. Due, um, she. Yes. I'm. Well, so we knew that. Okay. Um, those just listening. Sorry, it's probably sounds very incoherent. Just having some tech glitches. Um, but look at the thing. No, you can't, and actually, you can't look at the fancy. Imagine at the fancy art. <laughs> I can't yeah, see. Um, no, so we are going to say now, and hopefully uh, by the time we are almost, almost. Uh, by the time you can see us again, we will be able to sign out. There we are. Hi guys. Hi guys. Uh, we're going to take a fifteen-minute break. Uh, hopefully we can come back with our Q and A, and um, you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. You can email logistical questions that you may have about, say, how to ask logistical questions, or no, no. You can email logistical questions such as how do I ask questions of the Q and A, or um, what is going on there. Not that they will necessarily know. To darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com. Consider joining our Patreons. Please do consider uh, getting a hunter-gatherer's guide to the 21st century and asking us questions about that. And um, what else? Anything else? I think we've done it. You think we've done it. All right. I also think we've done it. So until next time, which may be 15 minutes from now and maybe six days from now, depending, uh, be good to the ones you love. Eat good food and get outside. But don't eat quail.